Hello and welcome to The Legal Helm, the show where we talk all things legal plus tech. We have a really fascinating episode for you today that could not be more timely. In this episode, BIM talks with Jan Schultz, Chief Data Scientist at iPro. Jan specializes in text analytics, information retrieval, and natural language processing with application specializations in legal technology, regulatory overview, law enforcement, and intelligence. They talk about why the legal industry needs to fully understand AI before it embraces it and how AI can augment and empower but not replace lawyers. And now, on to the show. Hello, Legal Helm listeners. Today on our show, I am excited to be talking with Jan Schultz, Chief Data Scientist at iPro, which provides legal e-discovery solutions to law firms and corporations. As well as his role as Chief Data Scientist, Jan holds the Extraordinary Chair in Text Mining from the Department of Advanced Computer Sciences at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands, where he teaches AI and natural language processing. And if that wasn't enough, he also teaches legal technologies to lawyers at the Leiden University. Today, I'm going to be talking to Jan about the application of AI technology in the legal space. Jan, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So Jan, maybe we could start at the beginning and just maybe have you explain a little bit about your role as Chief Data Scientist at iPro and what, what does that mean and um, what do you get up to on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good question and a very good start. I've been involved with iPro and also the company that was acquired by iPro, Xilab, for almost uh, 30 years. And in the last 10 years, my role was primarily to look further down the horizon and find new technology that work, that's stable, innovative, that could help our clients solve typical e-discovery and information governance bottlenecks. And, and this was typically technology that was like brand new, state of the art, and it would probably not be implemented in our product for like the next three to five years, some even longer. And what is very important when you implement this brand new technology, especially in the legal space, it's very important to test this technology, whether it's stable, transparent, uh, reliable. Very important is that it's legally defensible. I learned the hard way. You create black box technology and you use it in legal applications. It's very dangerous. You have to be transparent and you have to be able to explain your technology. And most important, I believe, is that you create trust with the end users, the lawyers, legal professionals. They must trust the technology. It's hard for them to fully understand technology because they often do not have the mathematical or other skills that are required to really, really understand it. But there are many different ways how you can make them actually feel they trust it and that they kind of understand what's going on. And only then they will use it. But that's my role. So responsible AI, responsible data science, legal defensibility, uh, making sure that we apply good science. We don't take shortcuts and we understand what we're using and what we're selling. Fantastic. Thank you for that. You, you mentioned a very key word, which is trust. And, and when you combine that with AI and trust, especially now more than ever, it seems to be one of the potential challenges of AI and AI application. I'm very interested to kind of get your opinion on, on that. And what kind of things can we do from a governance perspective to learn to build that trust, right, with the technology to enable it to be as powerful as it needs to be as, as a tool that we can leverage in, in the legal industry? 
There is a whole field which uh, is called explainable AI, XAI, explainable artificial intelligence. And that's one of the most important fields these days, especially, you know, I've been in this business for almost 30 years and 30 years ago, natural language processing didn't work. We tried everything, the speech recognition, machine translation, the quality was not very impressive. Today, we have a different situation. We had for the last five years, great technology that outperforms humans. But we have a problem. We have a problem that we do not fully understand what these models know, what they don't know, how they work, why they take certain decisions, why they do not take other decisions. And this is why a couple of years ago, we started a brand new research field in artificial intelligence, which is called explainable AI. And explainable AI tries to explain how these models work, not in mathematical terms, or in, you know, 100,000 dimensional feature spaces, because most people don't understand. But in a similar way in how we humans explain complex situations or complex decisions to each other. And for instance, you go to a bank and you ask for a mortgage and you don't get the mortgage, then the bank is not going to tell you how their decision process works. What they do is they take, for instance, a counter example approach and they say, well, if your salary would have been higher, then you would have gotten the mortgage. And we accept that and we understand that. So what we're doing now is we're, we actually went back to the, the psychology of explanation. How do you explain something to humans and how do humans explain complex situations to each other? And then we use these techniques and these ideas to uh, create extensions to these very complex artificial intelligence models. And for instance, one of the things we can do is we can change parameters, change inputs, and then see how the system responds. Or we can use counterexamples, or we can bring it back to some really basic features. Instead of looking at a hundred thousand or a hundred million parameters, we just look at the most important parameters. So we transform the space into a latency space with lower dimensionality. It sounds a little bit complex, but it's like, you know, instead of looking at a lot of variables, you only look at the most important variables and how the decision of the model changes when you change these parameters. It's the same like driving a car. You know, when you hit the gas, you want to go faster. You don't want to brake. And if you hit the brakes, you want to slow down. And that's how these systems should behave. You should, you change the input, it should change accordingly. And that's the start. It's the start of, that's the start of people understanding a decision. And then you, by providing more transparency and also make sure that the systems take similar decisions, you know, similar cases, that altogether creates trust. And you should be transparent. As an AI vendor, you should not use a black box approach. If you hide behind proprietary technology, that's not going to fly. And uh, especially in our space, we need to do this. And in Europe, with the Artificial Intelligence Act, this is all about explainability and it's all about transparency and creating trust. And I believe that's very good because I don't believe in black boxes. I don't believe in proprietary algorithms, especially not for sensitive topics like legal, but also medical applications. There's like a total Hollywood movies made about what can happen if we end up in such a situation. Totally. Yes. Yeah. And I, I love that link between the human psychology and, and the technology that makes total amount of sense for me. Hey, John, how do I find out what we've invoiced my client? How can I view my outstanding whip? How do I submit my expenses again? Do we have next Monday, Monday, Monday off? It's exciting to have fresh faces at your law firm, but onboarding them takes a lot of time and a lot of energy when everyone is remote. You're busy enough as it is. Helm360 has the solution. Just ask Termi. Helm360's next level chatbot solution for knowledge management. Termi can answer many of your new highest questions for you without distracting you or anyone else at the firm. 
This means fewer frantic emails, fewer help desk tickets, more time and more focused productivity for everyone at the firm. Working with Termi, you can have those eager new employees up to speed in a snap. They may never need to ask you a question again. Check out helm360.com forward slash Termi to see Termi in action and find out how it can make onboarding new hires as easy as sending an email. And it kind of leads me nicely to talk about the kind of hot topic of the moment, which is GPT and chat GPT and what that is doing yep. to not just the legal industry, but just, you know, pretty much changing the way that we think about artificial intelligence and bringing it to the mainstream, I guess, in some ways. Firstly, maybe we could, for the benefit of the audience, could you maybe give your view and explanation as to why is this technology from an AI perspective so significant, right? Um, and just maybe explain that in layman's terms for our audience. And what are you seeing in terms of the impact of the technology in the legal industry in terms of how you perceive it? Yeah, those are two very good questions. And I actually wrote a couple of blogs and articles about this. You can find pointers to them on my LinkedIn profile, where that's much more detailed. We can probably talk about this for several hours. Let me start telling why this is important and why this was a watershed moment for us in AI, especially the natural language processing part of AI. Like I said, for 30 years, we tried to teach a computer understanding natural language, human language, with translation, dialogues, syntactic analysis, semantic analysis, with those type of applications. And we never really succeeded. All of these systems were suboptimal. Now, the reason why they were suboptimal is that they all took a shortcut. None of these systems implemented enough uh, functionality to deal with all the special tricks and all the special aspects of natural language. And natural language, you know, starting at the bottom, we deal with punctuation. Now that's pretty easy for a computer to understand. And we deal with works, which we call tokens in computer science. On top of that, you have grammar, syntax, but syntax can be organized in different order. And you can have what we call ambiguity. And ambiguity is the biggest problem in language. Something can have multiple meanings. And we humans always immediately understand the meaning of a sentence. And for instance, there's a great sentence. I shot an elephant in my pajamas. Now the computer has trouble understanding whether I'm running around in my pajamas and shooting an elephant or whether there's an elephant in my pajamas that I'm shooting. Now, of course, the last one is ridiculous. And because we all apply kind of naturally linguistic probability, we don't see all these crazy different ambiguities that computers see. On top of that, if you're going to look at semantics, the meaning of something, there's even more ambiguity. And if you're going a step further, like pronouns or co-references, you see that natural language has a lot of relationships. Most of those are actually long-term relationships that could be in the same sentence, but one could be at the beginning, the other at the end or all the way around, or it could be in other sentences, or maybe a sentence, a couple of paragraphs earlier. Now, those long-term relationships, we never dealt with. We never dealt with anything more than some basic semantics. But in 2017, when Google published a revolutionary paper called Attention is All You Need, a five or eight page paper that kind of described a mechanism which was called self-attention, uh, multi-headed self-attention. And that mechanism was a mechanism where the linguistic algorithm was able to find not only like basic relationships like punctuation and syntax and semantics, but also very complex semantic relations like speech act, intention, pragmatics, and also certain long-term relationships. And this model was initially used by having an encoder and a decoder for machine translation. So the encoding was for instance, the English language and the decoding was the German language. 
And we build up to this model step by step, but this was like really a revolution. They call these models transformers. And the moment these transformers were used by Google, the quality of Google Translate went sky high. Also the Google search engine became much better. But Google used it in a different way. They, they used it to understand what people were asking and then convert it into keyword searches and then returned like traditional hits. So this revolution is already ongoing for six years. And it's really interesting to see now that Google started it and Microsoft is running away with it yeah, from a commercial point of view. The reason why this is so important and why I consider this to be a watershed moment is that these models are now able to generate human language. We can no longer distinguish from computers or from other humans. And that's, that's a major achievement. We were never able to do that. We can also have a natural conversation with a computer system. You know, the Turing test probably, well, I believe this era is almost the end of the Turing test because we can now have conversations with computers and it's very hard to determine who's the human and who's the computer. So that's a major achievement. The other major achievement is that these models from ChatGPT are the first models that are staying within ethical uh, norms and values, ethical boundaries. And there were a lot of other models, Lambda, but also the model from Facebook, from Meta, and, and of course the old chatbot from Microsoft. They didn't stick to ethical boundaries. Uh, these models do. And the way how we achieve this is by a methodology which we call reinforcement learning. And reinforcement learning is the same technology used for uh, AlphaGo, which was used a couple of years ago. Another breakthrough from DeepMind from Google, where the world champion Go uh, was uh, defeated by these computer algorithms. Now, what they did is that at OpenAI, they had humans chat with the computer for many, many months. And, and then the humans told them, well, this is a good answer. This is a bad answer. And this was all stored in the model. And this is also what they used. You probably read the story about Kenya, where they actually had people had like really, really obnoxious discussions and topics that you don't want to have people probably in the United States talk about in order to fine tune the model. Okay. This is a go. This is a no go. So those are the two things that are really important. We can now make a model that behaves itself. doesn't start talking about all kinds of crazy things immediately. And we have a model that we can no longer distinguish from humans. So these two problems we solve. What we didn't solve is that this is just a language model. Right? The way how this is created is it's actually from the transformers. It's not the encoder and the decoder. It's only the decoder. And all it can do is talk in a human way, but it has no clue what it's talking about because for that, you need an encoder. You need to feed it. You need to drive it uh, with something which makes sense, which are the prompts. And now Microsoft took a step by now saying, okay, we're going to drive it with what comes out of our search engine. So they take text phrases from the search engine and use that as a prompt. And sometimes that goes right. But if you do that in two long sequences after each other, you get these really interesting articles that we read in the New York Times this week about ChatGPT falling in love with the reporter. And people are suddenly, you know, suffering from the Eliza effect and start assigning sentience and consciousness to these models, which they don't have. It's just a statistical generation process. So we're getting there, but these models just generate language. So it's very dangerous to use them in applications where you need factuality. That brings us to the next question you had, what's the future in the legal space? Depending on what kind of text you want to generate, yeah, you can use ChatGPT as it is now, or you have to wait for other models. Because in order to have these models stick better to the facts, we need to have something in front of it. We need to have either a knowledge base or some kind of graph neural network or some kind of semantic network. 
that understands what's going on and that understands, you know, the, the semantic relationships between all the objects you want to talk about. And then we can actually generate some really good text. The other way to get the quality up is, is another example we saw last week with Harvey from Ellen and Overy, where the model is actually trained vertically with a lot of legal information, probably I don't know the details because they haven't disclosed anything, but probably from contract templates that they have at Allen and Overy. And then by training the model with this type of information, vertical training, it actually gets better at this type of applications because the original chat GPT was trained with just whatever stuff from the internet, including, you know, really bad uh, discussions deep down from the dark internet. We made a major step forward. Yeah, I'm super excited. This is one of the most exciting times in my life. Finally, after 30 years, this all works. We still have the problem that we don't know exactly what it knows and what it doesn't know, but we're working on that. But now we need to find a way to make sure these models stick better to the truth, to the factuality. And that's where we have to make some major steps. Now, Microsoft, in my opinion, did a very, very interesting experience by integrating this with Bing. Uh, but they took a huge risk because they take text from Bing with, without fully understanding the meaning of the text. And they use that as a prompt to generate a conversation. And that's where things go wrong. Because if you have like an individual with, suppose that you have like two different individuals with exactly the same name, ChatGPT and Bing are not able to distinguish them from each other. When you search, you immediately notice that if you're looking for John Doe and it's not the John Doe you're looking for. Uh, you have to look for the other John Doe, or you're going to add additional keywords to find only that individual. That type of stuff, that's what Bing and ChatGPT cannot do. It's very good in very detailed questions, and it's reformulating documents you find from the internet. But within those documents, we should add like an additional step where we structure the text better according to the meaning, and then it will be really a killer application. But I'm sure Microsoft and OpenAI are working on that. I think that for the legal space, we're going to see a lot of these, let's call them co-pilots, right? Uh, helping people to draft contracts or draft e-discovery responses or uh, similar to co-pilots in the medical space. And co-pilots, as Microsoft already uses in GitHub, I mean, where they claim that developers have like 40% more productivity by using these tools to generate code for them. I truly believe in the future of these tools as co-pilots, legal co-pilots that are helping us to generate templates and text, and then it's the human who's deciding whether it's right or wrong, because there's still too much risk that these models start to hallucinate and, uh, and don't stick to the facts. As an example, like GPT being so broad in terms of what it's been trained on and what it can do, and like you say, focusing on a particular area of knowledge and training on a particular area of knowledge. If a law firm today is looking at implementing some level of technology that involves this and to solve a particular problem, from a practical perspective, is that the starting point to really kind of contain it so that it's really focused on one particular key area and really control the outcome as such? Because like you said, I think for me, the biggest risk is that it can answer a question, but you don't know whether factually it's yeah. correct or not, right? Um, yeah. And ultimately that introduces risk. Especially when I think about some of the, some of the examples that you mentioned are, are really key in terms of enabling maybe junior lawyers, for example, to use it as an aid as they're learning, you know, how to be a, a legal expert um, and using it as a knowledge source, but then being trained to use that as kind of a basis of information that may not be correct, right? So would you say that as a practical kind of journey, should firms be kind of taking a step back and saying, right, what do we want it to solve? And then narrowing the scope of that? Or how do you think people should approach it? Yeah, well. Lawyers do many different tasks and ChatGPT alone is not a search engine. 
So an e-discovery for the larger part is a data sorting problem. Uh, information governance, the data part, the early case assessment is also a data sorting problem. That's not what GPT is designed for. ChatGPT is designed to have a conversation or to generate text. So it could be great to generate draft letters or draft templates. It is already used a lot on the internet to generate content for websites or to improve search engine optimization. It's also used for writing sales pitches. If you have a product, then the system comes up with a creative sales pitch. Now with sales pitches and marketing, if I'm a little bit cynical, you don't have to always completely stick to the facts, right? Uh, and there's a couple of those applications, maybe also in the legal space. Uh, if you're a criminal defense lawyer, uh, you have to be creative. Why was your client at that particular moment at the bank that was robbed? And why was he holding that bank with money? Well, he was just there and he tried to help the guy who was actually robbing the bank, you know, but of course he's not guilty. Uh, we've all read these stories in the newspaper. So maybe, you know, a little cynical criminal defense lawyer, you know, they can maybe use ChatGPT to create some creative uh, aspects. Actually, there's this company that's already doing it to help you to write a letter to object against the fine. And it's the same company uh, that, that also wanted to use the uh, lawyer in court. I forgot the name. Do not pay. Yeah, do not pay. But they tried to actually have ChatGPT as a lawyer which I understood that from reading that the U.S. courts uh, didn't allow. Yeah, one of the great examples is write uh, letters while you don't agree to a fine. And, and all those applications, you know, you can already use ChatGPT. But if you want to write a more complex legal contract, right now, lawyers can use templates. When GPT models are trained, they actually are trained on texts like these templates. So if you only train it on legal templates, it will actually find the statistical relevance of certain words and phrases and the context. And because these models are so long, they can recognize or remember a lot of context. It's actually a complex statistical method to reproduce the templates. And it's a little bit more flexible than the templates. The templates, you have to look for a particular template. ChatGPT can generalize. So if it sees all the templates, it can also create combinations of those templates. But it can also start hallucinating. And therefore, you always need to have a human being to validate everything they come up with. But the risk is with these models is that they generate this text with such an authoritative tone that you really have to concentrate to read it to see if it's nonsense or not. So there's a big risk if lawyers are going to use this for contract generation that they actually are going to read over errors or they don't see like more higher level intentional errors. And that's because the text is so perfect that you think, oh, wow, you know, that computer knows what it's talking about. But I think that's where it can help us. Maybe we see similar productivity numbers like with GitHub co-pilots, but everything needs to be checked. I do not believe right now that these models can be used as search engines. Uh, alone, they can definitely not be used because there are not search engines. Uh, they also trade with data until 2021, November 2021. So it has no awareness of anything happening after that. But if you combine it with a search engine, for instance, a legal search engine or a case law engine, yeah, you can use it to have a more natural conversation. Yeah, instead of keying in keywords, you're going to have a conversation with the computer. Now, what is really interesting here, it's more like a philosophical question. The average, do you know what the average query length is for keywords on Google? I do not. Sir. It's about 1.2 words. So most people find what they are looking for with 1.2 words. 
Now, I don't know if you've seen the examples from Bing and from Ellen Overy. When they ask questions, these are highly detailed questions where you really need to sit down and, you know, and key in a bunch of phrases. I'm not sure if people are going to do that. On the other hand, the model works so well because the questions are so detailed. If, if you look at all the examples that are used by Microsoft and Ellen Overy, there are examples with a lot of very detailed, very specific situations. Now it's like a legal situation in India with something in the US and then maybe some GDPR in it. I'm sure that somewhere on the internet, there is a document on exactly that case. And what it's going to do then, it's just going to reproduce that document by using the statistical models of the decoder. And with the risk that it may also go off track, which we call hallucination. And that's not going to work. We need to build kind of a knowledge graph and maybe a semantic network, a relation network where the meaning of all the words also in case law is represented. And so you know, okay, what's the, uh, what's the crime that's done? What's the applicable law? What does the law say? What is the effect? Uh, what, what's the evidence factory? Are there special circumstances? Other considerations? Eh? All of those are in a verdict. And the words that are used in uh, one part of that verdict have a completely different role than the words that are used in, for instance, this is what the law says. Because if the law says, doesn't mean that the, actually the suspect did it. And so you need to understand what the role of those words is. And then I believe you can drive the generation of language much better. So we're there. We're, we're halfway there. And we're going to get where we want to go, I'm sure. You know, five years from now, 10 years from now, search will be very different. But we need to work on it because the current models... Yeah, they are not reliable enough. And the biggest problem is that people don't understand why these chatbots in combination with search engines return certain answers. And Microsoft includes a couple of citations, but not all of them. And I do not believe that smart people are going to take a statistically generated answer for granted. They want to understand why the computer came to that conclusion and why the computer thinks this is the case. And that's something that hasn't been addressed at all. You know, we're taking a bit very, very big risk in the AI community because we, we've had AI summers before in 1970 with the Perceptron, in 1989 with backpropagation, but we also had AI winters, really serious AI winters, because in the summers we always blew up expectations and then the computers couldn't do what we expect and people got disillusioned. And that's, that's a big risk. Now it finally works. It can do a couple of things amazingly well, but we should be very careful not to now say, okay, you know, this is chat GPT. It's going to solve all the problems in the world because it isn't. And we should be very careful not to hype this too much and then create another AI winter for ourselves. That's the biggest risk, I think, now for us in the science. Agreed. Yeah, I think it's the start of a very long journey. And on that note, um, it kind of reminds me of a time when I was growing up and learning how to drive, for example, and getting my license and figuring out how to get from one destination to another. And in my days, which was a very long time ago, clearly, we used to use a map, right? A physical map to get from one destination to another. We didn't have the luxury of, of GPS and kind of guide us to different locations. And I look at some of my nieces and nephews um, these days who have got their licenses and they literally can't get out of the town without um, some form of electronic device to get them there, right? It's pretty interesting to see. And I think in the context of what we're talking about with chat GPT evolving to a point where it is able to answer, you know, certain questions that we then become dependent on, particularly going back to that early journey of a lawyer in our world, right, where they're kind of developing their skills, they're developing their knowledge, and they're starting to kind of retain some of those things and then apply those principles to the practice of law. 
And do you see any danger there, any risks there in terms of becoming almost too dependent on on it being able to answer those, you know, maybe rudimentary answers to questions, but ultimately you miss out on an element of learning and growth as an individual who then be, is supposed to go on to become an expert yeah. in their field. Yeah, yeah. Now, absolutely. Eh? One of the reasons why we learn to write is learning to write helps us to learn to structure our thoughts. So it is still very important to learn how to write. But there are a number of legal tasks that are done now by junior lawyers or interns, either for which we are cognitively not really suited as humans, like a lot of repetitive, simple tasks. A good example is redaction or anonymization. Now, that's something you don't want to do manually. Same is like finding for problems in a data room by putting junior lawyers with binders and markers in the basement and let them read page by page. That's not going to work. We see that in those type of applications, people maybe start with 80% quality, but very quickly they get bored and distracted and they fall back to 30% quality. So for certain tasks where hundreds of thousands or millions of documents have to be reviewed, or you need to analyze data, or you need to generate just a standard contract, probably these type of tools can help us. But for the strategic thinking, tactical thinking, yeah, we still need humans. I've been actually involved in the past many times. I was invited by law firms to help them presenting how advanced their law firm was to a group of students they wanted to recruit. So I was part of the recruiting process where they said, well, you know, in our firm, we use technology for all the boring work and you're only going to do like really interesting strategic legal work here. Now, of course, that's only the case for like the really top law firms, but for many of these law firms these days, it's very hard for them to find people that are willing to work 1800 hours, billable hours a year doing boring work. And I believe that the legal industry is the industry with the highest level of burnouts. So I think uh, we can help the industry by making work more interesting, helping them to retain employees and help their employees and partners to do really interesting work and provide a service to the clients that has value. Because if the lawyers don't go in this direction, I don't know how it is in England, but in the Netherlands, the big four have more employ already more law firms than some of the biggest law firms. And they do use technology and they are empowered by technology. And the only reason why they're not doing more legal work is that, you know, the national bar associations don't allow them to do it, but that's going to change. And so the whole industry, I believe is, is going to change. We can benefit by embracing technology in a responsible legal, you know, legally defensible way, and then become, uh, you know, happier and provide better services. And at the end of the day probably also make more money because a lawyer empowered with technology is worth a higher hourly rate than a lawyer who does everything with a fountain pen, you know, and manually in a library. Uh, and I think more and more the top law firms already understand this. I think the mid, mid echelon, I'm not sure, but they will have to, uh, otherwise I don't see a very bright future for them. I remember talking to somebody recently who was trying to sell a paperless performance solution to, to a lawyer, a managing partner. Yeah. And the reason why he was on the fence about buying the product was because there was no print button and he needed to print them out, put them on his desk to kind of like run through them one by one. And the person who was trying to sell them solution was like, I think you're missing the point of what the product's about, right? Yeah. I think you're right. I think that that's one of the challenges that we've seen in the legal industry for many years, really. And that is that Although they may be adopting technology, the actual rollout of the technology at the lawyer level seems to be a barrier to, um, yeah. to really, really making an impact. I loved 
uh, reading a little bit about what you do in terms of teaching really at the ground, right? When they're at that kind of student level um, and you're teaching, you know, young uh, students who are maybe learning the, the practice of law about how AI might impact them and how the technology pieces kind of come into play. I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that. And what's the reaction like when you're teaching some of those subjects? Do you see resistance? Do you see fear of like, is this, is this thing going to take my job? Normally for technology to become adopted takes 20 years. If you go back to television, radio, cell phones, a PC, a personal computer, 20 years from the introduction to like full-blown acceptance by the whole society. I believe maybe it's because of the partner model. It takes two times longer. It takes 40 years in the legal industry, but it is changing and they are no longer, they are using text processors. On the other hand, I recently got my hands on a work perfect t-shirt, which I was very proud of. And my children had no idea what it was. I said, well, and this is the most famous uh, word processor. And actually I got it at Legal Tech New York because Word Perfect is still selling to lawyers. Right? Can you imagine? Uh, shit, that poor. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, the legal industry is indeed a little bit slow, but uh, you also see this in the legal education. So if you look at universities, professors, associate professors, school professors, they are still very much of the old school, especially the scientific, academic, uh, legal universities. The students, on the other hand, they work with, you know, they are like digital natives. They work with technology all day and they do not understand why their curriculum does not involve more legal tech courses, not courses on what the lawyer thinks of technology. There's enough courses for that, but courses where, okay, how can technology help me as a legal professional to do my job better? What I experienced last couple of years is uh, because I teach always to mathematics and computer science students, and that's what I like. But I was approached by law students who asked me, can I please do an internship at your company? Because I want to learn this because I feel that the skills I learned at the university are useless. I feel that I'm out of the job probably in 20 years from now, if I'm not more equipped with technology. So that made me think, okay, maybe we should start a course. So I actually visited a lot of universities and some of the bigger universities, people higher up in the chain are very, very scared for this and they're pushing it back. But you see that other universities, like more younger universities, we teach it, for instance, in Maastricht. We had uh, more than 150 students, most students, signing up for this course. And we're now developing a course, a master, uh, responsible use of artificial intelligence. Now, a lot of interest there, but not from, not from the professors, not from the deans, but from the students. Now, I, I strongly believe the reason why I started teaching, I only do it one day a week, is that... In our company, we were not able to find people with the right skills. So at a certain moment, I decided, okay, I go to university, I teach them, and then hopefully I can find, you know, employees with the right skill set. So I've, I've always thought from the interest of the students and the interest of, you know, what do we need as a company and what do we need as a society in skill set. And what's interesting now is that uh, the government, uh, lawyers in the Netherlands are really embracing technology because they understand it can make them more agile, more productive, and, you know, help them to take better decisions. Because on the one hand, there's a lot of discussion about bias in algorithm, but on the other hand, computers are very consistent. So if you address the bias, computers will actually have less bias than human beings have. And they are really pushing it where on the other hand, corporate lawyers and law firm lawyers, they are the slow adopters where you would kind of feel it would be the other way around, you know, typically government's not the first adopter with a certain type of technology. But of course there's other dimensions like, you know, business models and those type of things. But we see that it's changing 
And as a university, you need to teach this. As a company, you need to embrace it. As a law firm, if you're not embracing it, okay, maybe currently your partners make a lot of money, but that's not a very sustainable business model. Because at the end of the day, if you are providing a service that is too expensive, too slow, and not good enough, there's never been a business model in the history of human beings that survived uh, that. Technology is essential. But I understand that lawyers are afraid of technology or they don't understand technology or that they don't trust technology. And my goal is to help them to address those concerns. I can help them understand it. I can make it transparent. I can help them getting trust. I cannot help them changing their business model. I cannot help them. Yeah, if, if there's another agenda, then an agenda to be efficient, providing a good service at the right time. So, uh, and those things sometimes get a little bit intermixed. I always try to understand what people's agenda is. People want to be helped, you know, I can help them. Do you want to continue working as they work? Fine, you know, good for you. I think the future is is pretty exciting when you see some of that young talent coming up the ranks that are technology savvy and are growing up in, in this generation, right, of AI. I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see what kind of problems they solve with the technology as they kind of use their skills in that area. So yeah, very interesting to see how that kind of develops and grows and it and impacts like future firms as well. I wanted to just switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about HiPro. And one of the products I've read about is Live EDA. And I wondered if you could kind of give our audience a little feel of what that's all about and what problem does that solve? Yeah, that's a very good question as well. E-discovery is very reactive or e-disclosure, as you call it in the UK, it's very reactive. You wait until there's a situation and then you, you know, you have this process and you need to follow the process and do it right. But what we see is that all of this, this e-discovery tasks are done on data that's out there in the company. There's an organization you may have heard of, it's called the AIM. It's the Association of Information Management. Works very closely together with ARMA, which is a records management association. And I was in the board of AIM in 2009, 2010. And we tried to propose companies and organizations to implement information governance principles. If you don't no longer need certain data, get rid of it. Because the problem with e-discovery is pretty simple. If you have a gigabyte of data, it doesn't matter what's in the data, you get a gigabyte bill. If you have a terabyte of data, you get a terabyte bill. So I wrote a post in a blog somewhere in 2012 with AIM, where I said, well, we have a new application of Moore's law. Instead of doubling CPU power every 18 months and doubling storage capacity for the same price every 18 months, we now also see that our legal bill doubles every 18 months. And that's that's actually what exactly what happened since those days. So at iPro, we take the approach that, okay, instead of just waiting for e-discovery, why don't you use the same technology to also go upstream and determine what's out there? Remove what you no longer need, if you do want to keep certain data for knowledge management purposes, fine, but make sure they're GDPR or privacy compliant, redact or pseudonymize or anonymize whatever personal data is in there and organize it, structure it so it can actually be found and it can be reused. And by doing that, you highly reduce the cost of e-discovery because you see that maybe only 5% of all the data you generate and maybe even less, especially if you include duplicates, is relevant. When I was at Xilab, I was a strong advocate uh, of that whole process. I think I even called it the dark side of big data in 2010 or something. But companies were not ready for it. They said, okay, you know, we don't have the money. 2008, 2009, big crisis. Why should I invest in something that's not going to give me a problem for the next five years? But now 
you know, we're 10 years or 30 years down the line and data has grown and grown and grown. And, you know, there's no reason to throw it away because every 18 months our storage space doubles. It's not like Iron Mountain that, you know, the warehouse is full and we need to start retaining data because it no longer fits in our physical space. The space is infinite. We need to start implementing retention management. And there's a lot of data that you don't have to keep, that has no value, that has no knowledge. It's, it's just junk. So why not throw it away? Now, with the technology that we have, the same technology we use for e-discovery, we can also use this on this type of data. And what we see is that where in e-discovery, you have to follow a very, very rigid process, very strict process. There is no room for errors. So you also have to be very careful what kind of technology you use and you have to do it right. In information governance, you have more flexibility. You have more time. The deadlines are not as strict as an e-discovery. If something goes wrong, you can fix it. So you can also take more risk with respect to the type of technology that you use. On the other hand, you have to use more advanced technology because the data sets are larger even than at the e-discovery space. So that's what we uh, believe in. Like I said, 13 years ago, the market wasn't ready for it. Now uh, there are many, many companies that are absolutely ready for it. Not only from e-discovery point of view, but also from a regulatory point of view or privacy point of view. And we've all seen the fines that corporates and hospitals got for like, you know, medical information flying around. If there's a cyber breach, you know, you're in deep trouble. If there's data all over the place and then you have to start informing all these people. Next thing you get is like an avalanche of data subject access requests, which are all like an e-discovery in itself. Disaster. Serial litigation problem. So be smart, clean up the house. And it's not that much effort and it doesn't cost that much. It's just the principle of good records management. And we used to do that. You guys in England, you invented red tape, if I'm allowed to say so. Yeah. <laughs> and you have the public records office. You have very, very strict records management uh, guidelines. Very good. But companies have all no longer have records management. We now have the approach. Okay. There's no records manager anymore. There's no archivist anymore. So record management's everybody's individual task. And as a result, nobody does it. And the government is still good records manager. So the government has much less problems with information governance, but corporates and, and especially like fast growing tech companies, it's not that much work. The costs are minimum or minimal compared to the cost you're going to run into, uh, when you're involved in like some serious e-discovery or regulatory investigations. Yeah, totally. I think we could spend a lot of time talking about data and data management and governance. And it's a whole whole topic on its own. And you, you should come back for another episode where we can focus on data because I think that's a, that's a big challenge and a big area that's relevant to so many different types of business out there. Jan, I must ask this question. Extraordinary chair in text mining. That is quite a title. Please care to explain that one a little bit further. Right. Well, like I said, uh, 15 years ago, we decided we needed better educated employees. So Zyweb decided to fund the chair for text mining and search engines. And in the Netherlands, we call that an extraordinary chair. So it's, uh, it's funded by the company, but the chair is completely independent. Of course, can do whatever scientific research it does. And, uh, and it's fully focused on the teaching and graduation projects, PhD projects, master projects. So that's what I do one day a week. Now, over time, I'm also became responsible for information retrieval. And since last year, I also became responsible for the advanced natural language processing for which I volunteered uh, because when I started in this business 30 years ago, I started in natural language processing. I started in machine translation, speech recognition, and I got really demotivated because it didn't work. 
and I didn't felt that the algorithms and the methodologies we used were ever going to work. So I kind of backtracked to search and information retrieval and text analytics because that did work. And that's what I've been doing for uh, a long time. But now uh, we see that suddenly overnight, last six years, these natural language processing algorithms finally work. And they do not just work, but they outperform humans. So I volunteered, fully embraced it, took over that course in the master last year. And I have to say it's great fun. And I was actually in the middle of teaching transformers and how they work and the mathematics behind the transformers in December when uh, OpenAI released ChatGPT. And, you know, there was so much excitement. I remember that Thursday morning, it was released Wednesday evening and Thursday at, at the um, neural information processing systems in uh, New Orleans. And next morning, my students were all excited, you know, a lot of noise and and they were giving me demos. Did you see this? And uh, we had a, a number of tutorials in the course where they had to program their own chatbots. And then in these tutorials, I would ask them questions of why certain methodologies work better than others. And they were actually answering those questions with using ChatGPT. So you may have read it where I actually took my exam, the draft exam for my course, and I put it to GPT and it passed with a, was it a B plus or, you know, A minus, which was, uh, I think the most viral post I ever posted on LinkedIn. You know, for us in data science and AI, these are great times, but now we have to make sure that uh, it's applied responsible and that we're not going to over it. And we make sure that people understand what these models can do and what they can do. We all need to have a little bit self-discipline and, you know, hold back a little bit. I'm not sure everybody is capable of doing that. It's super. I'm very, very happy to, to do this at the university still working with students on the one hand and then working with corporates on the other hand, you can make sure that things are done well in both worlds. Agreed. Like I think, it, like you said, it, it's such a fantastic time to kind of see all of this stuff evolve. I do believe that education is key and it's really great to have people like yourselves sharing your knowledge and experience to also contain the beast that is, right? And make sure that we're doing it at the right pace um, in the right way as well. So really, yeah. really good to see that happen. So Jan, I just have a couple of wrap-up questions, if I may. My first is, I asked all my guests this question, interested to get your answer. If you could borrow Doctor Who's time machine, I think they play Doctor Who in, in Netherlands. Yeah. If not, then think of Back to the Future instead. If you could go back to Jan at 18 years old, what advice would you give him? Cool. Well, you know, I was always, uh, I was always, like I said, you know, I built my own Macs. I, I love pinball machines. Yeah, what advice, you know, go on, you know. So I wouldn't do anything different. So that's, uh, that's for sure. I have no regrets. If I'm allowed to go forwards, well, you know, that will be interesting. I don't know. Uh, I think these times are so exciting. I don't want to miss them. I know my students how, how grateful they should be that they are at their age in this moment in time. Mm. You know, I'd love to be 25 again and then, uh, you know, be in the middle of all this. And because what's going to happen next is we've now solved this language problem. Hey, you may have heard of Whisper, which is also OpenAI's speech recognition. Hey, you know Dali, the image uh, generation. Now, what's going to happen in the next version of GPT, that's all going to be combined. And like it's combined in our heads. So, you know, times are going. 2023 is going to be a super exciting year in AI. Really exciting year, I agree. Um, Jan, any closing thoughts or advice for legal professionals in our audience? Well, don't be afraid. Embrace it. You need to, uh, to understand it. Uh, you have to understand it. Don't accept technology you don't understand, you don't trust. But look for the right sources to help you to understand it and to trust it. And, and don't, uh, you know, 
uh, the ostrich approach, then if it's English, uh, that doesn't work. You cannot ignore it. Unless you're like 65 years old and you're going to retire very soon. Then you can probably continue working for another couple of years the way you always were. But if you want to stay relevant and be relevant in 10 years from now, you have to get yourself up to speed. And there's more than enough resources. Also at Oxford University, Cambridge University. In the United States, there's Georgetown providing excellent education, Stanford, Berkeley, MIT. A lot of these courses are open courses that you can follow. And if you happen to uh, be in the Netherlands, Maastricht, Leiden universities, all great universities where they can teach you this kind of stuff. Fantastic. Great advice and tips. I really appreciate that. Jan, how do people reach out to you, contact you if they want to follow up with you? Yeah, well, LinkedIn is the easiest. Just Google my name. I love to engage with you. Wonderful. Thank you again for your time today. It's really been fascinating talking to you and I hope you do come back for another episode in future where we can talk more. I think we could have spent another hour talking about this stuff because I, I love learning from you and hear, hearing this stuff. And to my listeners, if you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe and spread the word. It really makes a difference. Thank you very much, Jan. Yeah.